Welcome to the Redeemed Community Church podcast, where you can hear sermons and devotionals from our church located in Toronto, Canada. Our vision is to be a Christ-centered community that makes disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the delight of his people. In today's episode, Elder Dominic Krakowski wraps up our Mercy in a Broken World sermon series by preaching on what grace-fueled generosity looks like how we can become a church that shows such great generosity. All right, good morning, everyone, both uh, to those of you who are here in person and to everyone who is watching online through Facebook Live. We are filled with joy to be able to have each and every one of you with us today. And we are finishing up our sermon series on mercy for a broken world. And in today's sermon, we are going to talk about the topic of giving. Now, if you were to go just on the street and randomly talk to the first person that you bumped into and ask them for, ask them, what do you know about Christians, the church, and the topic of money? There is a good chance that perhaps something that might come to their minds is going to be on the negative side. They might bring up perhaps various um, high churches that have extravagant buildings and wondering, why does the church need to have an extravagant building? You may have someone who brings up the topic of televangelist scandals. Why are there certain people who are siphoning money from their congregation, their poor congregation members, to fund their extravagant lifestyle? Or what's the deal with these mega churches, churches that have to have massive properties, massive parking lots, all the cutting-edge technology? Why are they spending so much money on that? And while all of these issues are indeed real and they're complicated and they're problematic to different degrees, The truth is that there's also countless examples of Christians who live radically generous lives when it comes to their finances. So a few examples. There is um, R.G. Le Tourneau, a 19th century businessman, who came to Christ and decided that he would live off only 10% of his earnings, and he used the rest to found educational institutions to fund missions work in South Africa and plant churches. Then there's Louis Tappan, an 18th century merchant who founded a Fortune 500 company, but decided to give most of his money away to fund missionaries, build churches serving rural communities, and be involved in various um, ministries or various uh, organizations that were trying to bring an end to slavery. And then finally, uh, another example is John Wesley, the influential evangelical preacher during the evangelical awakening in the UK. He's the founder of the Methodist movement, and it's estimated that uh, the number, uh, the, the, uh, the revenue that he would have generated from his books in today's dollars would have netted him about $10 million. But he died penniless because he chose to give everything he had to the poor. So what makes some Christians live radically generous lives? Why do some behave in the way of these examples? Not to mention the countless others who we don't know about because they don't have fame. But why is it? And that's going to be the topic that we're going to study this morning. So we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we are going to be studying the example of a church that was so generous that the Apostle Paul was astounded by their generosity. And this morning, the topic of our sermons is called uh, Grace-Fueled Generosity. So let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, as well as verses 8 and 9. So first Paul writes, 
And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us as well. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through... Oh, it looks like the, uh, the last verse got cut off, but it says that through... Um, so that uh, you, through his poverty, might become uh, rich. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your presence amongst us. We know, God, that we are just simple men and women. We are sinners, and without you, God, we wouldn't be here. Without you, God, it wouldn't be, we would, who knows where we would be, O oh Lord. But yet you have saved us, your grace has changed us, and has drawn, you into, drawn us into relationship with you. And Father, as we study your word today, and we study this topic of giving and generosity, I pray, Father, that it would be your Holy Spirit that speaks to us this morning, and that it would convict our hearts of the truth that you want to speak to us. I pray that you give us humility and openness, and I pray, Father, that it would be a word that doesn't just, it's not something we learn about God, but it's something that changes how we live. We thank you and we give you all of our praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what is grace-fueled uh, generosity or generosity fueled by grace? So to answer kind of the initial question that we talked about is what makes some Christians willing to give so radically whereas some do not? We're going to uh, begin by opening up with verses 1 and 2. And just for a little bit of context, in the first two verses, um, Paul is sharing about the news about generosity share, uh, given by a couple churches in Macedonia, which is in modern-day northern Greece. Uh, the background is that there was this devastating multi-year famine that took place in Jerusalem, and it was so devastating that it just left many of the people living there uh, poor, hungry, starving, and in severe trouble. And especially, the churches that were living there were very afflicted through this time. So Paul, when he was going throughout the Roman Empire in his ministry, uh, in his missionary journeys, in addition to preaching the gospel, evangelizing, and discipling the churches, he would also arrange to collect money from the churches that were willing to be able to provide to, this, to the churches in Jerusalem that were struggling through this famine. Uh, biblical historians call this the Jerusalem Collection. And we are told in verse 2 that the Macedonian church, they are going through their own severe trial. They are not doing that well themselves. They are going through some difficulties, and that because this was a very poor area of the Roman Empire itself. But yet, despite this poverty, they not only gave to the Jerusalem Collection, but Paul says that they showed great generosity. Now, when we typically think of 
perhaps your friend or someone that you know that is a very generous person that is giving of their time, giving of their money, uh, just always looking out for other people as opposed to themselves, what do you think makes them that way? Perhaps we might say, you know, they're from a particular culture that, and background that is very generous. Or perhaps that is how their parents raised them. Their parents instilled this value of generosity in them. Or we might even say, you know, that is just their character. That is just how they are. They're built differently than I am, and that's why they are so generous. But Paul here gives a completely different reason. He does not attribute the Macedonians' generosity to anything of themselves, their background, how they were raised, but specifically he says that it is the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. It is this grace that despite their poverty, despite their circumstances, it has welled up in them overflowing joy and has produced rich generosity. So when we examine this question, well, why do some people give generously and why don't? We must realize that it is not, first and foremost, it is not anything natural. It is a supernatural thing that happens. But what exactly does grace-fueled generosity look like? What was it about their generosity that looked so incredible to Paul that he had to uh, point it out? And so we're going to now jump in through verses 3 through 5, and Paul's going to go into a bit more depth about what the Macedonians' generosity looked like. And as he goes into this description of their generosity, we are going to see uh, two key characteristics that will help describe us. Well, what does it look like for the generosity that God wants us to go? So the first characteristic is above and beyond giving. We are going to see that the church in Macedonia displays above and beyond giving. Take a look here at verses uh, 3 and as well as the end of 5. So in verse 3, Paul writes, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And then in verse 5, he says, They exceeded our expectations. Now this is interesting because when we talk about giving and generosity in our culture, maybe in our secular culture, we have a very different mindset. We don't have an above and beyond mindset. We have a mindset that's more, what can I spare? What do I have left over to be able to give? Perhaps you've heard, um, whether through a radio ad or a television ad for a different charity, they will often, an often pitch that you will hear is, for the price of a cup of coffee, you can donate to charity X, Y, and Z, and we can do you know, A, B, and C. And the appeal is that you can, if you can spare this amount for a cup of coffee, surely you can spare this amount to help a charity or to help someone in need. And don't get me wrong, I don't mean to suggest that such strategies are bad or wrong. In fact, for many of us, breaking things down into this daily or weekly cost is a great way to get started with uh, giving. But as shown in this passage, as well as the rest of the New Testament, the church will not simply just look at their budget, look at their wallet, and say, what is an amount I can comfortably give? They will always look to give above and beyond. For example, in Acts chapter 2, we are shown that church members are selling property and possession to give to those in need among them. In Acts chapter 5, we are told members of the church sold land and homes to support one another. And in Mark 12, Jesus commends uh, a poor woman who has only two coins but gives them both away. 
showing that it's not just about the gross amount that we give, but rather the amount that we are willing to sacrifice. So as I mentioned, in other words, the, the example that we see in the New Testament is Christians not calculating their budgets and seeing what can I spare, but instead, well, I know that this might hurt me a little bit. I know it might require a sacrifice, but can I give above and beyond? Can I give a little bit more? Take a look at this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis from his book, uh, Mere Christianity, uh, a quote that I think really kind of captures the essence of the kind of the, the mindset of the New Testament church. He writes, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to a standard common among those with the same income as ours, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. And there ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. So a question for us, if we examine ourselves and, and, and ask, are we living you know, a life of giving that is grace-fueled? A good question is, am I willing to sacrifice any part of my life for my giving? Am I willing to accept that by giving and by being generous, I'm going to afford a, you know, a vacation that's not as glamorous as I, was, as I was originally hoping to? Are we willing to accept that I'm not going to be able to furnish my home maybe the way I would have ideally liked to? Or I won't be able to eat out as often as I would have, you know, as I would generally prefer to do? Do we see ourselves making these types of sacrifices? Now, Paul makes it, you know, abundantly clear in, uh, later on in chapter 8, that the goal of above and beyond giving is not self-deprivation for the sake of self-deprivation. We shouldn't give in order to try to impress other people or in order to, uh, to try to prove our holiness. But take a look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. He writes, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. So the essence is that above and beyond happens as an act of love. When the church sees a need and responds through their desire to meet that need, and as a result, they are simply just willing to sacrifice or accept the sacrifices that come to them. Now, the question you probably are thinking is why would someone even want to, sacrifice, to accept that sacrifice? And this is going to be abundantly clear when we see the second aspect of grace-fueled generosity. So the second characteristic of grace-fueled generosity is eager and joyful attitude. We see here in verse number four, when Paul talks about the attitude that the Macedonian churches had when they were giving, he describes that they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. So they urgently pleaded, and they described it as a privilege, that it's a privilege to be able to give and to extend generosity. Now, I find it interesting that Paul says that they pleaded. To me, that gives the impression that perhaps Paul, seeing their poverty, may have said, you know what, you guys actually are ones that other churches should be giving to, not churches that should be giving. I can't let you, you know, give the amount that you want to do. But I get the impression that perhaps it's possible that these churches would have pleaded and would have argued, 
I, we understand, Paul, that you, don't, that, that you care for us, you love us, and that you want us to be mindful of how much we're giving, but this is something that we in our hearts simply want to do. It is a privilege, it is a joy for us to be able to give. Now just let that sink in for a second. Because oftentimes when we talk about giving in our Western culture, and when we talk about serving or just acts of generosity in general, it's not uncommon for people to actually give or to serve without ever actually wanting to do so. You know, we know that it is the right thing to do. We know that it is an important thing to do. But we also know that you know, people are going to look at us kind of funny if they know that we are stingy, if we are unwilling to be you know, generous. So I want you to imagine a hypothetical scenario. Imagine we lived in an alternate reality. I love Marvel verses right now. Marvel movies are going into the multiverse. So imagine that there is a multiverse where it is socially acceptable to not be generous, where it's socially acceptable to be stingy. Now imagine sitting together, going out for lunch with your friends, or perhaps with your coworkers, and you guys are just having a conversation, and the topic about giving comes up. And when you're sitting in that topic, everyone's sharing about their experience, and you say, you know what? I've never given to anyone other than myself. I've only looked out for myself. And then your friend turns to you and says, Dom, good for you. That is impressive. You are so smart and disciplined. I wish I had a heart like yours. Now, obviously, that's ridiculous, and I don't think anyone would ever say that. That's just awful. But imagine if we lived in a world that had that kind of a mindset, how would that affect our generosity? I think the uncomfortable truth is that a lot, that a lot of people would be far less likely to give. And that's because the truth is sometimes, yes, we give because of social pressures. We give because of our expectations that people have amongst us. But as we've seen here, the Church of Macedonia does not display feelings of dread. They don't feel guilt-tripped. They don't feel pressured. They don't feel anxious or second-guessing about what they have done. They are simply filled with joy and gladness. So why is that? Why do they have such joy to give, even though they themselves are hard-pressed? Mind you, to a church that is hundreds of miles away, to people that they have never met. Well, I believe the answer is that giving is an outlet to express love. And when we express love, we actually feel blessed or happy. So take a look at Acts uh, chapter 20. This is Paul talking with the Ephesian elders. And in verse 35, he says, And everything I did, I showed you, that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'm sure all of us have heard this statement in our life, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, Jesus said that first. And like probably many of you, for me when I think of this, I think of Christmas. Now I actually really do enjoy the Christmas season. I love getting time off from work. I love spending time with my family. I love most of all, the exchange of gifts. And each year, I'm always the one who is most eager for the exchange of gifts. I'm always going, hey, I think it's time for us to exchange gifts now. Um, hey, you know, it's getting kind of late. I think we should better get this over with before it's going to be too late. And then, you know, if no one asks, I'm like, all right, it's gift exchanging time, guys, let's go. You know, when I was younger, of course, the reason was because I just wanted all the cool toys that my parents were, you know, what, that they got me. But now, as I'm a little bit older, the truth is I love doing gift exchange because I just enjoy the look on my wife's face, my mom's face, 
eventually my child space, as I get to share them a gift and watch as they open it up and see that it is something that they hopefully either really wanted or something that they needed. And it brings me joy to see their heart fill up knowing that they feel loved. And I have a feeling probably many of you can relate to an example like this or have another similar example of, indeed, there was a time in your life that you felt great joy when you had the opportunity to give. And it's because you love that person. You love that person and you want them to know about that. And so for the Macedonian church, the one that we are studying this morning, you know, their joy and their generosity is just an indicate that their hearts are filled with so much love for this suffering church, even though they haven't met them, even though they have never had a personal conversation with them, they love them and they want them to know that they are loved and that they are supported. So therefore, if we find a question that we must ask ourselves if whenever it comes to the topic of generosity or serving or giving up of our time or money, and we find that in our hearts we don't have an eagerness or that there isn't much joy, or perhaps if we're doing it begrudgingly, the question that we should ask ourselves is, well, is there love in my heart for the people that I'm serving? Is there love in my heart for others other than myself? And if not, why is that so? All right, so now we now have a fuller picture of what grace-fueled generosity looks like. It looks like when the churches go above and beyond their, need, uh, their uh, means to meet an expected need. And we know that it's punctuated with joyful attitude. But the problem that we still need to address is what do we do when we don't see grace-fueled generosity in our own lives? If we are not going above and beyond, if we are not interested in giving or do so with a begrudging heart. And that leads us to verse number five and the last part that we're going to study today, and perhaps the most important part, which actually differentiates grace-fueled giving versus secular giving, and that is that it is all spawned from our relationship with Jesus. So the secret to grace-fueled generosity, the secret behind why the Macedonian church is the way they were, is because it is all spawned from their relationship with Jesus. Let's take a look at verse number five. Paul writes, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So what does Paul mean here? So I want to draw your attention to what Paul says the Macedonian churches gave to God. He doesn't say that they gave their money or their possessions first to God, but rather they gave something even more valuable. Paul says that they gave themselves to the Lord. And so in order to live a life that is truly generous, it requires you to be able to surrender yourself to Jesus. And why is this? Well, when Paul is writing this, he is talking about trust. To give oneself to the Lord is about trust. And there are two aspects of trust that I want to touch upon. The first is that the Macedonian church has learned to trust that God's sovereign hand is upon their lives, their entire lifespan on this earth. Remember, this entire earth, it has been created and it has been spoken to, spoken into existence by God. And Colossians 1 tells us that all of creation is sustained and held together by Jesus. It is him who makes the mountains tall. It is him who makes the oceans deep. The areas that are, have desert is because of him and the areas that have 
uh, rainforests and gardens and, 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 and full of life are through him. The Bible, in fact, makes it clear that he is involved in every single small detail of this earth and that he even knows every single one of the 100,000 hairs on your head. And when we imagine God in control of all these things, we must realize, we must conclude, therefore, that as much as we like to think that we are in control of our lives, that it is up to us to determine, well, am I going to be able to make it through the next day? Am I, am I going to be able to be safe and secure for the next 5, 10, 15 years of my life? Am I able to secure the life of my children and their children? Well, the truth is that it is actually God who is our sustainer. It is God who has led you through every single point to your life today. It is God who is holding you together and holding every part of your life together now, and it is God that will hold you and sustain you in the future. And because of this truth, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, do not worry, do not cling to your money or your material possessions. See how the Father sustains even the sparrows in the air. Doesn't he love you even more than them? For the Macedonian church, they are convinced that this is true not just intellectually, but in their heart. They know that God is taking care of them and that for better or for worse, whatever they come across, they know that it is God working and holding them together. But there's a second aspect of trust here uh, that's involved and, and perhaps even more important to grace-fueled generosity, and that is trust that we have indeed inherited eternal life in the kingdom of heaven because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So let's jump forward now to verses 8 and 9 and look at what Paul writes here. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnest of the others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. The reality is before Jesus... Each and every one of us, regardless of if we are millionaires or if we're homeless or if we're somewhere in between, our spiritual condition was that we were poor. Because of our sin, we were alienated in our relationship with God. We did not have relationship with him. And because of our trespass against him, our rebelliousness to his lordship in favor of our own, our destination was hell. It was the wrath of God itself. But Jesus, on the other hand, was rich. He was already in the heavenly realm with God. He had perfect fellowship with the Father. There was nothing more that he could have needed in life. There was nothing more that he could want. Everything was perfect and content. But yet, despite the fact that he had this comfort, despite his richness in the heavenly realm, he became poor. Paul writes, he became poor for us. And this is not just because he was born to the Son uh, born as a son to a poor carpenter, but rather because he took on the weakness of human flesh, and he lived a life of servanthood from us, and he never sinned, and he was willing to die on the Roman cross to take the punishment, the death that we deserve for our sins, and then he gave us the righteousness, the perfect life that he had. So now we have credit for that, and we are able to live in fellowship with God. We are able to have the promise of eternity in the kingdom of God, ours. So it's not, so according to Paul, it is not how much, how, how big our bank account is. It doesn't matter the size of our house or what we have inside it. 
It doesn't matter what we drive. It doesn't matter what we're able to afford for our vacations. That does not make us rich according to Paul. He writes that we are rich because of our relationship with Jesus. This is the greatest treasure that we have. It is available for us now, and it is what we will experience when we die, a perfect life in the kingdom of heaven. And because this treasure is so great, all other treasures pale in comparison. Take a look at Matthew 13, 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. When I think of uh, this passage, I think of now my daughter, uh, Evelyn. She's almost going to be two years old, and she's at the phase where she's able to run around the house on her own, and she gets into everything. Like all the drawers, all the cabinets, she just pulls out the random things that we didn't even know that we had. And then like she'll, you know, wave it around, play with it, do all kinds of crazy stuff with it. Unfortunately, most of the time, these things are either fragile, uh, they're dirty, or they're unsafe. And if I just simply take the, that thing from her, you know, she's going to cry. She's going to want it back. She's going to complain that I you know, took it from her. But the, the, the strategy that we learned, and at least it works for Evelyn, is if I you know, grab one of her toys, especially one of the toys that she really likes, and I hold it to her instead, you know, she'll drop whatever weird item it is that she found instead and just embrace that toy or embrace that you know, object that we've passed on to her. You know, she sees that this toy is, in fact, far greater than this you know, dirty stick, fragile piece of glass, or whatever it is that she is holding on to that we don't want her you know, to grab. And likewise, that is what it is like for us when we grasp what the kingdom of heaven and what our relationship with Jesus is truly like. How incredible of a treasure, how incredible a gift you know, that it truly is. We simply drop our clinging or drop our hold on all of these possessions that we have on this earth. We're, or we're willing to because we see that they just simply don't uh, have value. They don't compare to what we have in Christ. And so this is the secret of grace-fueled giving, seeing the incomparable worth of Jesus, seeing the finite, limited value of what we already have, and then seeing the need from our fellow brothers and sisters or people outside of the church in this world and having love well up in us that we cannot help but to give and to want to support them because we know that the greatest treasure is still to come. It is still yet there for us. And so as a church, I do believe that we have the potential to be a church that shows great generosity. And in fact, over the years, I have seen members of this church display examples of grace-fueled generosity. But if we want to grow in this area even more and become a church that really excels in this, it will happen as we naturally grow deeper in our relationship with God, as we come to know all that we have in Jesus and to discover that He is indeed our greatest treasure. It is only then that we will see ourselves grow in great generosity. Thank you for listening to the Redeemed Community Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or links to past Sunday service live streams, please visit us on our website at redeemedchurch.ca or you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash redeemedchurchtoronto as well as on Instagram at redeemedtoronto.com.